I don't know about you guys, but that worship set this morning was a great blessing to me. It's almost, and then the last song that they're going to sing, it's like icing on a, on a cake that was already too good for us, that was already better than we deserved. So thank you, worship team. The, um, the ushers are coming forward now. They have Bibles. If, if, you don't, if you brought your own Bible, please go ahead and grab that. They also have a piece of paper and a pencil to take notes if you'd like to do that. You might have noticed this morning that when you came in, there was butterflies adorning the, the, the building this morning, and that's because those were something that uh, brought Dolores Hamaker a lot of joy. We had a memorial service yesterday, and so we left those up for one day. And also, I wanted to, to mention really quick a gratefulness for Jeff Strother doing our, our welcome and announcement this morning. We didn't make it easy for him, first service or second service. There were some sort of difficulties, but he's, he's the guy that can roll with the punches, so I was glad that he did so well in that. And he's one of our, our deacons that are in training right now. We're, we're hoping to ordain uh, some men as deacons to, to serve Christ and to serve you all here. So please be praying for, for those group of guys that are, that are in that process right now. So, if, um, if everyone has their own Bible, or if they need a Bible, please go ahead and grab, grab one. Let me start out by saying this morning that here at First Family Church, we love Jesus Christ. Who He is and what He has done changes everything for us. It changes everything for anyone who would believe in Him and trust in Him for salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Word made flesh He's the second person of the Trinity. He's co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He's uncreated and the only mediator between God and man. He redeems us. He washes us by His blood. He justifies us and He sanctifies us. And it is impossible for us to overstate the importance of who He is in our lives. And when we read the gospel accounts of his life, there are, there are many things which we just we can't help but to remember and to, to stand in wonder and adoration of. Who can forget the many times that he healed the sick, the lame, the blind, the deaf? Who could forget the, the demons that he cast out or when he brought the dead to life or, or when he simply spoke? And he calmed a storm, a raging storm on a sea just by speaking and commanding it and telling it to stop. Or when he fed thousands off of just a few scraps. Or how, how no one was able to trap him in his words. And of course, how he rose himself from the grave. These are unforgettable, amazing things that declare the glory of God that, that we can't help but to remember when we think of Christ Jesus. There are all of these miraculous signs, and yet... One of the places that, that Jesus declares the glory of God and is sometimes or often overlooked, I think, but is very important for us to remember and influences how God would have us live is the richness of his kindness toward us. John writes of Jesus in John 3, and he says that he, Jesus, didn't come to the world to condemn it and that if we believe in him, that we would not be condemned even. Sadly, though, the dominant message of the world opposed to Christ about Christians and about Jesus himself is that we're all about condemnation. That's what gets put forward in these supposedly woke news outlets. Or, or that's what gets put forward on social media platforms is that Christians and even Jesus himself are just self-righteous condemners of people. They, they miss all of these wonderful things that we remember and hold on to and instead they latch on to this caricature of what the reality is. And yet the, the reality is that Christ's life is a, is a life that is marked by kindness. We were condemned already, we read in John 3, verse 18. And Christ's coming was kindness, it was grace, it was mercy, it's love. But again, you know, the world believes we're this self-righteous, that we're a group of people, that we're smug condemners of people not like us. But that's certainly not the Savior that we serve. And certainly that shouldn't be what people think of us or of Him. Now in the ninth chapter of the Gospel to Matthew, you could, you could turn there if you'd like, uh, there's this instance in which Jesus is eating at Matthew's house. Matthew and you know, Levi decided to hold a feast for him. And we, we are told there, I think it is, um, it's not in verse 
13. Uh, it's, um, but anyways, we're told there in Matthew 9 that tax collectors and sinners were coming to him. That's what we see happening here. There, there's going to be this feast and tax collectors and sinners were coming to him. It's verse 10, 9 verse 10. And it's been a while since we talked about these tax collectors, but I want to refresh our memories a little bit, but basically they were, they were viewed as being morally repulsive. They stood out in a crowd of sinners as sinners. And, and from what I could tell, there's, there's no moral equivalent to what these people represented that exists today, that was existing, existing back then in Jesus' day. They were despicable human beings who were not to be trusted. And if you understand the historical context, you could completely understand the anger that first century Jews felt toward tax collectors. And then the subsequent confusion that they had because Jesus kept eating with them. He kept welcoming them. He kept interacting with them. Then you also have this category of sinners. And when you and I think of sinners, we just think of those who sin. And that's true. And there certainly is a very real sense in which you know, everyone is a sinner. And that view also existed here in this time as well too. But there was also a category of people who were categorized as sinners, especially. So above and beyond what we just might normally call sinners. So if you were born with a physical deformity or you worked in a capacity of sinfulness, such as like if you were a prostitute, for example, if you had a handicap, you were, you were viewed as this class of sinners. And these people, tax collectors and sinners, they were not welcomed in the temple. They were not invited to come in and to worship God. They had been taught early on that they were beyond the mercy of God and outside the promises of God. And yet, when Jesus comes, and Jesus is God in the flesh, they flock to him. And he doesn't refuse them. He doesn't turn them away. He, he over and over again rejects the self-righteous. But those who would be rejected by the self-righteous, Jesus welcomes them. They don't feel judged. They feel loved by him. This is the shocking kindness of Christ Jesus. He doesn't condemn sinners that come to him in faith. And it's one of the, the ways that we see the glory of God. There's a story in the Bible that I think just, it captures this, this whole idea so, so wonderfully. It's in John chapter 8. So you want to turn, if you're in Matthew, to you turn a couple chapters there to John. Jesus, let me set this up a little bit for us. Jesus is in the temple, and he's teaching on the Sabbath. That is, you know, what he does. He is rightly exegeting the word of God to God's people. He's explaining to them what it means. Now, we don't know all the specifics here, but maybe at the end of the church service, it, it, you know, it's over, and he goes outside, and he sits under a tree, and, and there's people hanging around, and probably there's people coming up to him, and they're asking him, you know, about the things that he was teaching. They're wondering more about what it was he was saying. But then, all of a sudden, there's this loud group of guys that are coming up. And they're, they're notable men in the community. We read that they are the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 3 who are coming up to see Jesus. This, it's the often self-righteous people that had a problem with Jesus making the associations that he did. And so they make their way up to him and they throw before him a woman who's, who's most likely partially nude and, and they say to Jesus this woman has been caught in the act of adultery which is crazy right? She's, she's caught in the middle of it that's embarrassing but, but where's the dude at? you know it takes, it takes two people to have an adulterous relationship did he just slip away? Did he, was he more crafty? I don't know. But, you know, you can't have adultery with just one person. And so here's this woman that they bring to Christ. There's no kindness. There's no gentleness in the men. They're only concerned with their view of righteousness and justice. And they, they throw her before Jesus. They have stones in their hand. And they say, the law of Moses says that she is to die. What do you say? And they're not, they're not wrong about that. They're not misquoting the law of Moses in that. They're trying to trap our Lord, of course. And here's this man who is known for welcoming sinners and not condemning them, but now they got him. 
He's going to have to agree with these supposedly righteous religious teachers. Well, Jesus, according to the text, and this is here the text, it's, it's strange. He, he bends down and he starts, he takes his finger and he starts writing in the dirt. What, what do we write? We don't know. No one is going to actually know until heaven. But that hasn't stopped a lot of people from speculating about what he might have written there in the dirt. Some people have speculated that he wrote down the secret sins of the men that were making the threats, kind of like to call them out. Now that, that would be a savage move. And he could, he could do that. He knows everyone's secret, secret sins. There's nothing hidden from Christ. But we don't, we don't know. We don't know what he wrote. So he's, he's sketching in the dirt. He's not responding in the way that they, they want him to, in the way that they expect him to. And so they, they press him to make a decision. But think about this woman for a moment. If you think about the shame that occurs against your conscience when you sin, it, it probably would have hit her later after the act of adultery was over. You know, the sense of guilt and shame would come over her for it unless her conscience was super sheared, seared. But, you know, this, this guilt and shame that she would have felt for doing the sin is even in a way the Lord's mercy in that it makes us, it would make her to see her need of a Savior. But think of the shame you'd feel if you've been caught in the middle of an act. And this secret shame, which you'd have to deal with secretly and privately, now becomes a very public shame. It's not just secret shame anymore, which is it's already crushing to the soul. It's a, it's a very public shame, and a group of guys brought you down to the church. You're probably not fully clothed, and they're, there, they're bringing you there to condemn you. And again, you're partially naked, and you're in front of a group of men, and you're in front of the most righteous man. In fact, the only truly righteous man who ever lived and whoever walked the earth. And Jesus says, in, in being pressed a second time by them to give an answer, because he's just ignoring them, riding in the dirt, um, he says, let the one of you who's without sin cast the first stone. And he goes back to riding in the ground. Now the detail of the Bible here is, is very important. It, it says, from the oldest to the youngest, these men dropped their stones, and then they, they left. They walked away from the oldest to the youngest. Now, if you've lived your life, you know why the older guys are the ones who drop their stones first. You know, the longer you live, the more aware you are. The longer you especially live, you know, under the law of God, the more aware you are of your sins and the root of them. That your sins are, are often just the outplaying of a root sin issue that resides down in your heart. The longer you live, the more you are aware of them. And the younger guys, of course, then the more blind you would be to them. And which, if you consider how obsessed our culture is with the youth these days, it, it really highlights the foolishness of our society. But from the oldest to the youngest, they, they dropped their rocks. The crowd went from violent and loud and angry to quiet. The Bible says, you know, what it seems is like it's just. Jesus and the woman there, verse 9, so that Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And then he says to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is, this is the kind of radical mercy and kindness that we see in the life of Christ. And, and yet, even as Christians, my experience is that we think that Jesus is somehow, some way, by and large, mildly disappointed with us. When we struggle with sin, whatever sin that is, whatever our own issues are, it is, it is just a demonic scheme of the enemy to make us believe that Christ is always mildly disappointed in us. And therefore, you know, we shouldn't go to him and to his throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. One of the things that's really powerful about this story of the woman caught in adultery is that Christ isn't outside of this moment, harshly judging this woman. As commentators have pointed out, he's, he's actually entering into her shame with her. Do you, do you know the kind of difference 
that makes in, in your life concerning Christ. If you believe that Christ wasn't outside of your struggle, harshly judging and condemning, but he's in your struggle with you, showing you kindness that leads to repentance, I'm, I'm telling you, I have been a Christian long enough to know that many of us don't know how to deal with sin. We, we condemn ourselves. We, we feel like we're fakes and phonies and that God surely, he, he's made a mistake. And we're going to finally and eventually get outed and busted as being less than the people that we say we are. Our secret shame is going to become public shame. It's, it's a fear that governs and dictates our lives. It, it twists our lives and it robs us of the freedom and joy of being found in Christ, of being loved by Christ and being the benefactor of His kindness. And the reality is, is that we are far worse than anybody might ever find out. I want you to understand, though, that as we all stand, in a way, fully naked, exposed with all of your sins, past, present, and future, before Jesus, He says, does anyone accuse you? Does no one condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is Paul's point in Romans 8 when he says, Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is, God has justified them. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. That's why there is therefore now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. What could anyone tell God about you that God doesn't already know and hasn't fully atoned for in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? There is nothing anyone could say to God, and God doesn't already know because God has already handled and responded to you in kindness. You can't be busted because God already knows. He knows everything. There's nothing hidden from God. You can be busted before man, and that's hard, but you can't be busted before God. You don't have any secrets. It's not like God is only checking in on you on Sundays, and he says, oh, you know, you're in the seat here in the church. Good. Check that off sees everything. There is nothing hidden from the creator of the universe. He knows all. He's sovereign over all. And for those in Christ Jesus, for those who have repented of their sins and trust in Him, we are hidden in Christ. And we're free from any condemnation. And we're, we're about to talk about a God this morning who is pro-life and the implications therein. And I'm going to need to say something. And I, I know that the issues surrounding the pro-life movement are, are far-reaching. If it, if it hasn't affected you individually, you personally, it most likely, it probably, I could almost say without a doubt, that it has affected someone either in your family or someone that you know, a friend, a neighbor. And the kind of darkness and brokenness associated with this topic can, can last for decades in the life of a person. It can, it can last for their whole life, even, the remainder of their life. And so when we touch on sensitive subjects like this, we need to have a framework in our minds, in our hearts, of Christ saying, I have not come to condemn you. I have come to save you from condemnation. We need to have that fresh in our minds. He is a fountain of grace and mercy that we are to drink from. Truly, that gospel hope is is what we need every day of our lives, no matter what the issue is. Now, as we get into this topic, if you're trusting in Christ for salvation and you hear a voice of self-condemnation today, know that that's not the voice of the Lord. If you hear a voice of, of self-condemnation today, you're not listening to the voice of Christ. That's not some... There, this issue that we're talking about is not some sin that is more powerful than the cross. But the cross is greater. And Christ is kind and he offers repentance and salvation to all who come to him in faith. And so with that said, if it wasn't obvious already by now, you know, we're taking a break for our series through the letter of Galatians this morning because today is a nationally recognized calendar day that we as Christians must care about. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And that, it was coined that by the Reagan administration in 84. And this year marks the 46th anniversary of the reason for such an observance. 46 years ago, abortion, and, and we, we need to call it what it really is, church. Murder was made legal in the United States. 
and it, it was it happened in this landmark case, Roe versus Wade. Now, to be totally honest with you this morning, I, I don't really like Sanctity of Life Sunday. Maybe, maybe it's better to say that I have a complicated relationship with it. Now, even if there was no nationally observed calendar day for Sanctity of Life, and, and to stand, which you know reminds Christians to stand in the an opposition to, to a, abortion, Christians should be pro-life. And by pro-life, I mean, I don't simply mean that we should be pro-life in the sense of the advocates of abortion and the proprietors of it. I also, I also mean being pro-life in the sense that we desire justice for the elderly, for the chronically ill, for the mentally ill, for black lives, for white lives, for brown lives, for all kinds of lives. And in so much as Sanctity of Life Sunday is about advancing the implications of the gospel this morning, then I love it. It's not social justice. That's not a real thing. There's no such thing as social justice. We're talking about biblical justice. And if that's what Sanctity of Life Sunday is about, then I love it. You know, it has a place to be discussed and advanced on the Lord's Day. But in a, in a more, I guess, what is a substantial sense, I, I wish there wasn't a, a Sanctity of Life Sunday. And it's for two reasons, mainly. Number one, in, in many pulpits today, the spirit-filled gospel proclamation as our best weapon against evil in this world will either blatantly or inconspicuously be put aside and be put out of place for political involvement and activism. In, in far too many pulpits today, voting in a certain way will be held up as our best hope to put an end to legal murder. And don't get me wrong, you know, voting the right way is an important step. But the Lord's Day service is not the place for such a thing. And, and so many of God's people will go hungry today, not receiving the restoring sustenance that is God's gospel preached to them in truth and received in faith. And secondly, you know, I, I long for a day in which there will be no Sanctity of Life Sunday because the fact that we have one is a glaring reminder that we are failing at, a, at one of the most basic human right levels, human rights levels the right to live. God grants and gives life. And every other right we have flows out of this gift that God gives to us. We have to say things that should be obvious to, to other people. Mothers shouldn't kill their children. Fathers shouldn't abandon mothers or encourage mothers to end the life of their child. Uh, yeah, their child, both of theirs. Physicians who take a Hippocratic oath to save lives shouldn't be angels of death in lab coats. Every human life is valuable and priceless, regardless of one's ethnicity, one's age, one's ability, one's social and economic status. Yet the simple fact that we have a Sanctity of Life Sunday is a reminder that we must say these things that there is injustice abounding. And so what I want to do this morning now, after, after making the point that there's no condemnation in Christ, and that's so important, church, I, I want us to be remembering that, that there's no condemnation in Christ. We must flee to Him in faith and in repentance. I want to make a simple, positive case for God being pro-life based off of the law of God. And because the driving voice of the public today is that the pro-life position is one for religious right-wing nutjobs and the pro-choice position is the voice of you know, these woke, progressive individuals who have true reason, I want to address two arguments so that you can enter into the discussion, hopefully defeat their arguments, and then be able to point them to Christ in it all. So let's first start with the most basic commands of God on this topic. We're going to look at God's law. And, and the reason that we're going to do that is so that we might know what he's like. So you can turn to Exodus 20. That's where we'll be for a moment. One of the reasons that God gives to us his law is that so we might know what he is like. And then we might know what he likes. So we might choose to live in a way that is pleasing to him. We call it the third use of the law. It is the privilege of believers to take advantage of the third use of the law. The law is important for us as new covenant Christians. There are teachers today that will say the law doesn't matter. That is, that is error. That is 
it is, it is quite possibly blasphemy. And I don't want to use that word loosely because um, we have to understand exactly what they mean. But the law of God is a joy to us as believers. It helps us to know what God is like and how we should live. That is the way we use it, and it's called the third use of law. There's two other uses. The first use of the law is that it is to show us our sin. It is to act like a mirror, that we look into the law of God and we see that we are not righteous, that we have fell short of the glory of God. And so it acts as a, as a mirror to show us our sin with the hope that it then we would flee to Christ in faith for a Savior. And the second use of the law is that it is to restrain evil in the world. You know, do, you, do you wonder why it is that we just don't have you know, people you know, punching each other in the face and, and taking their wallets without any recourse? It's because the law of God is restraining evil in the world. And even the matter we're dealing with today, this matter for, of abortion, it's, it's an evil in the world that our government is failing to restrain. That's, that's what we're considering today. So, all I want to look at this morning concerning the law of God is verse 13. It's very short, and it's very simple. We know it as the sixth commandment, and it simply says, you shall not murder. And again, I must stress the fact, brothers and sisters, that is what abortion is. We can't afford to soften this anymore, church. It is murder, plain and simple. We aren't speaking of the killing of men in a lawful war. We aren't speaking of the civil magistrate's right to administer justice when crime calls for it. We aren't speaking of self-defense or, or the defense of your family. Those things aren't rightly called murder. Neither are we talking about those rare instances in which the life of the mother and the life of the baby are both at stake, like with a, a tubal pregnancy, for example. Those are, they happen, they're rare, they're very heart-wrenching. They're very difficult cases that need to be handled with compassion, with grace and wisdom, but, but it's not rightly called murder. God himself is the giver of life. And for people to step into the equation and take life is an attempt to overthrow his sovereignty. It is an assault to Christ Jesus himself because all things are made through him and they are made for him. Now, of course, the commandment goes beyond you shall not murder. It goes to the very heart of man to forbid hatred of one another, as Jesus would teach in the Sermon on the Mount. Even potential murder is a sin worthy of judgment, Christ Jesus says. But our problem here in America is not a potential problem. A potential problem is one thing. It's enough to bring our souls down into eternal punishment. But we're facing an astronomical, actual problem with abortion. Abortion is morally outrageous. It is fatal for children. It is soul-crushing for men and women. It permeates our culture, and it, it is erodes it. It turns us into a culture of death. And there is legalized murder happening every day across this nation. Some 2,000 lives are lost every day. And I pray and I hope that God will raise up people across this nation to speak against this monstrous evil until there is a day when our nation will just wake up. It's like we are asleep, stuck in some sort of nightmare that has been lasting 46 years and which it should, what should be plainly obvious to us is is hidden. It's a mystery. There is certainly some sort of demonic blindness that has overcome us. And we're not the first group of people to kill our kids. This is a demonic thing that has, that has been happening as far back as the Bible goes. We, we see the people of God sacrificing their children to Moloch in, in First and Second Kings. This is part of the reason why you know, God was wanting to separate Israel, separate them from the sins of the land that were in there. We see the Spartans in the Greco-Roman world who when they would have children, they would look over the children and if there was some sort of defect in it, maybe if you know, mom or dad didn't like it for whatever reason too, they would throw that child off of the mountain. They would end that life. We see families in China in more modern times ending the life of female children in favor of keeping male children. This is a, a, a demonic power that has been invading humanity for thousands of years. 
We're just a, we're a more civilized version of it, but make no mistake about it. It is just as evil. And here's what we know. Maybe, maybe if you're not persuaded by the Bible, there are some arguments that are quite common, but, but this is what we know. You know with, within three weeks from conception, there's a heartbeat already. At nine weeks, babies in the womb can, can suck their thumbs. They, they recoil from, from pricking at, at just nine weeks, which means that if you try to, to draw blood off the heel of a baby in the womb, it will it'll pick up its leg. You know, he or she is capable of, of feeling pain. I couldn't tell you if there are vocal cords that, that young. Probably not. And we couldn't hear their screams anyways because they're in the womb. But you know who can, right? Those silent screams that take place at any point in the womb carry to the throne room of heaven. He knows, he sees, and he hears. And now, I want, I want you to look at me because I want, I want you to be clear about this. Remember, now where is your accuser? As no one condemns you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. That is what Christ tells us. And so what we're considering this morning is the kind of murder that a woman or the couple who decides they aren't ready for a child, after having already done what it takes to make the child, goes into. Or sometimes it's, it's even that they aren't ready for another child. And I, I have a hard time understanding how that happens. How a woman could carry a baby to full term, give birth, raise this child, feel the child moving in her stomach, see the, the miracle that is childbirth, and then abort children after that. Now there is a darkness, a spiritual blindness that is over so many. That is the only way that I can fathom something so dark like that happening. And it happens more than we care to admit. Just, just last month, a, a local person, a, a local girl from our area made nationwide news. It's very possible that this uh, young person went to the, the Planned Parenthood that is only a couple you know, blocks down the street from us. And she made national headlines because she posted on social media that she was getting an abortion and that her two other children, her two other living children, would have an angel in heaven watching over them. The reason for this abortion, presumably, you know, she couldn't afford to take care of this child, but there was no remorse in her. There was no brokenness over it. She was announcing it on social media so as to be proud, and even went on to say, well, you know, now I can celebrate my 21st birthday without any shame, which I, I'm sure you've been drinking, girl, before you were 21 anyways. But, you know, I, I wouldn't believe it if it wasn't true. There, there is a cloud, a growing cloud of proudness that is becoming commonplace in our culture concerning abortion now. There, there's a movement even where you can hashtag shout your abortion and put it on Twitter or Facebook and then you can have other people congratulate you for it and, and share in it. I even saw Planned Parenthood recently made some giant billboard that said like, you know, I'm proud I had this abortion. I'm glad. It's deplorable, church. There is a woman's march that now takes place the day after March for Life. March for Life has been going on for, I guess, 45 years now. Um, the woman's march has been going on for three years now. And a main, and mind you, the, the major news channel, again, these supposedly woke you know, organizations, they don't show the March for Life. They don't show the thousands of people that, that go to D.C. and then march to D.C. to try to speak for those who have, a no, who have no voice of their own. Instead, they show the, the Women's March the day after. And that march is about a number of things, but one of the main things that it seems to be about is the right to preserve the ability for the mom to make the, the choice in having an abortion. And, and I use the word mom loosely in those situations. We, we're considering this morning the kind of murder that people sometimes make because they feel pressure from outside sources. And they don't want people to find out how they've been living. The person who feels like they aren't ready for some reason or another to raise a child. And, you know, I, I think 
often when we think of abortion, sometimes it gets put forward that it mostly happens out of convenience. I don't know if that's true. I, I know certainly there's probably a lot of there's a lot of women who do so with a heavy heart and regret and brokenness in the matter. And then there are of course even more complicated situation situations, more heart wrenching situations, but it doesn't change the fact. There's still murder too. Abortions, you know, again, they don't always happen out of convenience. Sometimes it's frightened and scared women who go to the abortion mill with a heavy heart. There are murders because the child was conceived through rape. There are murders made because the doctors spot some sort of a genetic abnormality, a genetic abnormality that, mind you, would be livable. There, there are murders made because the man in the relationship is so unsupportive and he abandons his partner or he encourages her to go forward with the abortion. You know, I have to wonder, how many fewer abortions would there be if the men who contributed to the pregnancy acted like a man and took responsibility? And the reasons go, they go on and on and on and on, but none of them are good. So there is this demonic blindness that goes over us and it's so dark and again I want us to remember that Christ is is reminding us there is no condemnation for those who are in him who go to him in faith even in this matter Ephesians 6.12 says for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places and this world system which is so opposed to God and, and loves this present darkness and relishes in this blindness has come up with all of these ways to keep us in this present darkness. And many of the arguments that they employ, friends, they are directly aimed at us. They are aimed at the church. And they're aimed at Christians because it is often Christians that are speaking up for the unborn. We aren't the only ones, of course, but we must absolutely lead the cause to make this change. And since we're going to stand in that gap, we need to be ready for some of these arguments. I have time to just go over two of them this morning. So the first one that I want to mention is the, the not, that it's, the not a, it's not a person argument. But that life in the womb is not a person. It's not a person. And I think we're forced to admit that that's, that's a smart move on their part. I mean, it's stupid, of course. But uh, what could it be other than a person but it's an effective way of taking the edge off the act. If it's not a person, then why, what does it really matter for? It, it must be okay if it's not a person. And you even come across some people that are so disillusioned, that are so blinded by this darkness, that they'll say, it's, it's not a person, it's a zygote, or it's not a person, it's a fetus, as if that makes it okay. Do you see the darkness in that, the blindness to what is obviously true? It's not like that zygote inside the mother is going to develop into a lizard. It's not like it's that, that fetus in a, in a pregnant pig is going to possibly develop into a human. People beget people. It's an absurd argument. It is a person from the very start. It is people that are made in the image of God we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. People don't turn into people at some point in their age of gestation. It is that God gives special attention to personhood in the scriptures. And so that's why this argument is absolutely foolish. Let me, let me show you that. Let's turn to Psalm 139. Psalm, the book of Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 139 is, of course, towards the end. Okay, so I'm going to start at verse 13. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He's, he's, the psalmist here is speaking about God, what God's done. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That, that passage is so helpful. What we're, what we're reading in the Bible is that moral, spiritual component that we alone possess. God is actively 
putting that together in our mother's womb. Now, we know biology. You know, as Christians, we're, we're, not, we're not idiots. Some of us give us a bad rap. But we know biology. We know how babies are made. We don't think that, you know, you're going to go to the doctor and take an ultrasound and see the Holy Spirit in there with some needle and thread doing work. That, we know that that's not true. We know God is accomplishing his purposes through biological mechanisms that he set in place in creation, the beginning of all things. So we know what's going on in the mother's room, in the womb. But what, we, what the Bible is arguing is that there is a spiritual reality that is also happening that is unique to humans. And it's tied to God's sovereign reign and God's desire for your life and, and mine. And I love this passage because if we want to talk about the intimacy at which God has been involved in your life, it's found in this text. The Bible it says that your, your personality and your physical stature, they were woven together by God in the womb. He's that active. He's that involved in it. To have the image of God stamped on you, and that begins immediately. That's what it means to be a person. And it is God who gives life, and animals don't have that. They don't have this sort of care. We don't read about that in the Bible. And all people know this at some level, but again, there's, there's just this demonic power that is blinding so many in the world. It, it, is, it is so perverse. It is so backwards. We are, we are spending millions of dollars right now. It could be, probably is, billions of dollars uh, to send a, a rover to Mars in the hopes that it might found life. I might find life. And, and do you realize that if it finds even just one little cell, you know, one little cell that's alive, the world will deem it as priceless. They'll respect it. They will rejoice. It would be taken care of. And yet, you have Planned Parenthood exposed last year for selling actual baby body parts that were aborted. And there's a price for those. So dark. It is so, we're, it is so evil. My, you know, my family, we really, we really like to watch those nature shows. You know, like National Geographic and Blue Planet. There's a new Blue Planet even that just came out. Well, one of them is it's kind of hard to watch, but you know, you still kind of have to watch it to see how it's going to turn out, to see what's going to happen. And so in this particular episode that I'm thinking of, there's this, this pack of killer whales, and they're hunting, and they're chasing humpback whales. And there's a, there's a mom humpback whale and a baby humpback whale. And they're chasing, these orcas are chasing these humpback whales for miles. And what they're doing is they're coming up, and they're gaining on, on the mom and the baby, and then they, they breach a little bit, and they go on top of the baby, and they, and they push the baby down. They try to keep the baby down under the water so that baby can't come up, and it can't take a breath until eventually the baby drowns, and then the orcas have the, have the meal. And it's, it's hard to watch because we're people. You know, we want to fight for that, that little baby to survive and, and to live. You know, it, that's not how we're wired. But we need to notice, it's not like the cameramen are calling the coast calling the Coast Guard at that moment to report a murder. No one is calling 911 and is like, hey, there's a group of crazy whales here and they're killing another whale. That, that's not happening. We're wired different. You know, if, if a cameraman was to, to jump in the water to try to stop the killer, that, that'd probably be a stupid thing to do anyways. You wouldn't want to jump in the water. But, you know, regardless, if they were to try to intervene and stop these killer whales from killing this baby um, humpback whale, they would have been, you know, condemned for that, for, for interrupting the natural order of things. And the reason being because those aren't persons. Persons are different. That argument doesn't hold any water, I think. The second argument I want to talk about today is this argument that goes like this. It says, well, it's not your body. So just, you know, stay out of this, stay out of the discussion. You know, if this, if this world system that is enveloped in this present darkness can't get you to give up personhood, so they want to distract you and appeal to something that sounds just and something that sounds noble. You know, that, that's this, it's not your body argument. And again, I, I gotta say, it's kind of smart. 
if it wasn't in fact so stupid. You know, the the argument becomes, well, it's not really a baby, it's and it's we're not worrying about the baby, it's it's the woman's body. And you don't have to you don't have the authority to speak about the woman's body. Now I get the heart of this argument. There have been injustices done to women, injustices still happen here in America to, to women. And so this sounds just and noble. This sounds like women's rights. And, and a woman does have a right to her body. But let's not miss the point. This is a child's right issue. It's not a woman's right issue. This is the child's body that is being poisoned. It is the child's body that is being torn, literally, limb from limb. Now, at the moment of conception, according to the Bible, a soul is in place. And on top of that, we know from science that this brand new, completely unique strand of DNA is formed. It takes some of the DNA from mom, some of the DNA from dad, and it makes this unique strand of DNA. It's its own individual person. It's not the woman's DNA, it's the, the baby's DNA. And we know that very early on, the organs of a baby are working. The baby's brain is rapidly developing. The baby's heart is beating. I, I always loved the ultrasound visits with, with my kids and with Anna. And we, we had a lot, uh, with Maisie especially. But almost always, they, they would find Anna's heartbeat first. And then, you know, they'd have to search. We'd get all excited. and like, oh, there's the baby's heartbeat. And they're like, no, no, that's mom's heartbeat. And they'd have to search some more. And, and then they would isolate the baby's heart, heartbeat. You know, they isolated it. It's a separate heartbeat. It, was, it wasn't Anna's. It was Silas's or Oliver's or Nora's or MJ's. Even... Even the idea that the law has no authority over the woman is, is just absurd. There are all sorts of laws on the books that say a woman can't treat her body in a very specific way. You can't use drugs and then not have any consequence. You're going to get arrested if you do that. You'll go to jail. And there are all sorts of other laws, but I'm telling you, this demonic blindness in our day and age has us acting like fools. I'll use this illustration, but there are many that we could use. My, my wife works as a neonatal nurse at John Muir in Walnut Creek, and sometimes the babies that she takes care of are there because mom chose to use drugs during the pregnancy. And in some states, uh, like Tennessee or Alabama, for example, that act of delivering a baby who's addicted to drugs would mean jail time for mom. That's not the case here in California, and there's good debate as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing to do. But even here in California and in most other states, you'll lose the, that baby and that child will enter the foster care system if it's born addicted to illegal drugs, if you abuse illegal narcotics, with the exception of, of alcohol, sadly. Um, if you do that while pregnant, you'll lose that baby and the child will enter the foster care system. The state will deem it wrong for you to be able to care for that baby because you've shown that you haven't done so while the baby was in your womb. And we want, um, you know, to care about the, li the life of that child and, and hopefully, you know, put that child in a safe place. So the foster system is good for that. We're grateful for that. And so the, the birth parents will lose the baby for a time, maybe even forever. But depending on the state, a mom could walk into a clinic and have that same baby aborted after only, um, you know, a few months before he or she was due to be delivered. So do, so do you see what I'm talking about here? There is this 46-year-long living nightmare that we are drifting through. It is evil, and it is demonic. So how should we respond? How do we engage a culture and make a change, and at the same time, come alongside men and women who have had and been through abortion and tell them, you know, where are your accusers? Has, has no one condemned you? Neither do I. Come with me. Let me show you the one in whom there is no condemnation. If you repent from your sins and trust in him, he'll receive you. So that, that begins with the gospel. Charles Spurgeon once said, Preach the gospel, the gates of hell shake. Preach the gospel, prodigals will return. Preach the gospel, it's the master's mandate. And it sounds like an oversimplification, but it's not. This is God's wisdom. Remember the Apostle Paul in Romans said that he was not ashamed of the gospel, for it was the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God to free people from condemnation. And remember, what is it that we're really dealing with in this problem? 
Again, remember, the command of God is simple, it's clear, and it's plain. It is do not murder. But there is a present darkness blinding people. It is spiritual warfare that is underneath this 46-year-long blindness that we have just been wandering through. But this is the power contained in the gospel that will knock down the gates of hell. It is the light of the gospel that will chase away this darkness that is confusing so many. And so if we know someone that has murdered their child, we bring them to Christ. I know that it is becoming more popular today to be, to be proud of your abortion. The conscience of many has become so seared. But for many women, there, there's heartache attached to this. For men too. There is brokenness and rejection and judgment on them for their sin will not heal them. That is not how Christ treated sinners. So instead, we should compassionately, gently, lovingly walk them to Christ. Help them to see that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That if they will repent from their sins and trust in Him, that He, in fact, absorbed any wrath, any condemnation that they deserved. And so they might walk then in newness of life. That is the power of the gospel. And this, it hits close home for me. Christ revealed himself to me when I was 23 years old. That is when he called me and saved me. I, I was thinking that that means that in a little less than eight years, I will spend half my life in the Lord. I'm, I'm so grateful. But before that, I was implicit in, in at least one abortion. And I didn't try to stop her. I'm doing better this service. I still feel that sting. But I know also that Christ holds me up. He doesn't throw a stone. In fact, he took all the stones that could have been meant for me upon himself. He's a wonderful Savior, friends. But the power of the gospel doesn't stop there. It begins there. And so I have four suggestions for you. Ways in which you can live out of the gospel and speak into the lives of others. And even if you can't do some of these things, it doesn't change the fact that God is pro-life. And therefore, we also should be. So first, consider adoption. You are friends with, and you are family members with, you are neighbors with people who, who one day may consider having an abortion. You have the opportunity to live out of the gospel and speak into their life and to talk them out of it. You can tell them of other options. You could adopt their baby yourself or you could introduce them to someone who will. It is, it is no mistake, I think, that one of the most vivid allegories of the gospel is adoption. Everyone, spiritually speaking, is, is born in Adam a bastard. And it is the grace of God in Christ Jesus that makes us his family. We are, we are adopted, we read in Romans 8. Galatians 4, we read that we are adopted into God's family. And so you might even consider fostering to adopt or looking directly into an adoption agency. And of course, there are people who are not Christian and they foster and they adopt and, and praise God for them. But shouldn't we? who have been adopted into God's family, who understand the realities of adoption better than anyone else. Since we have been given life, shouldn't we also then care about adoption and partake in it, if we're able? Even if you can't welcome a child into your life for some reason, couldn't you support financially someone who wants to? There are many ways to be involved. Secondly, be involved in abortion clinic ministries. Now, there is a, a growing presence across the nation of people who stand outside of abortion clinics to plead with people for the life of the baby. It is an evangelistic outreach, and it is fueled by the gospel. And you, you have to understand the kind of work that this is. The people who do this are acting like a last line of defense for the life of the child. 
They're, pre- they're hoping to prevent the furthering of sin. If a person is going to an abortion clinic, it, it may be the result of a previous sin, some sort of a union out of wedlock, but even married people have abortions, of course. So maybe it's not, though. But if they're considering abortion, it's a potential sin, and I guess every potential sin would then be a previous sin, because even you know, the desires that we have that are sinful, God considers condemnable and judgeable. And so you stand there out in front of those clinics and you plead for the life of the child. It's not easy ministry. It is tough ministry. You stand out there in front of the clinic with a sign, with a handful of gospel tracts and with the gospel in your mouth, but you're potentially preventing someone from, prevent, from committing another sin. And it's, again, it's hard. It is not easy ministry. It is not meeting up with your buddies over coffee to talk about the Word of God, which is great. You should do that all the time. Do it frequently. But this is hard ministry. But do we expect everything to be easy? Was it easy for Christ, humanly speaking, to take on flesh, to never give into temptation and to die on the cross? We can't even begin to fathom, I think, the difficulty that that was for Christ. We, we just give into temptation even when we know that we shouldn't. But the difficulty that Christ went through to live for us and to, sa- to save us and defeat death and have victory over it, you know, there, there is a Planned Parenthood only a couple minutes down the street from us. And every Friday, you could join us out there from 8.30 to 10 a.m. And maybe if we have more people who are willing to be out there, we can have a greater and more frequent presence out there. You know, talk to me if you'd like to be involved with that. We, we need you. And then three, always, always pray. Now, don't forget to pray that God would put an end to abortion, that he would raise up people that would be able to kind of be like William Wilberforce's, who, who William Wilberforce was essential in putting an end to slavery. Pray about abortion coming to an end and keep abortion always before you. You, know, you could read good books about abortion. There are many out there. You can watch the Ray Comfort movie 180. You can watch it on YouTube. It's 30 minutes long or so, but it's helpful to think about the problem of abortion. There's another movie that's called Babies Are Murdered Here. You can watch that as well and keep praying that God will have mercy on us and that we'll see an end to this darkness, to this blindness. And then lastly, be a regular giver of your money to crisis pregnancy centers. In just a few moments, we're going to take an offering for options for women. If the the band, I think, is in here, you guys want to come up now. I'd appreciate that. Last year, Options for Women had appointments with 417 women or couples. They performed 83 STD screenings. They did 231 pregnancy tests. They performed 196 ultrasounds. And do you know how much it costs the people who receive these services? Zero. It cost them nothing. It was free to them. They were able to do those things through the financial contributions of churches like ours and other people in the community. And so in just a moment, the band will lead us in one last song. The ushers will come forward so we can take an, an offering for options for women. And so remember, church, you know, God is pro-life. This, this plague of death that is abortion is not a battle that we're losing, even though sometimes it feels like that. Even if America never gets it right, even if we never make it illegal again, it's not as if God has failed. He has victory in Christ. Every knee will bow. The demonic blindness and darkness will not last forever. But since we have the opportunity to do good and to give God glory now, let's do it. His grace is sufficient for us. He created us in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not that these good works would save us, but that we might enter into them and give God glory. And remember, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your gospel which enables us to come before you free from condemnation, knowing that you even view us as your own children. It is a wonderful, marvelous, 
mystery, a great blessing that I, I can't even put into words how important it is and how grateful that we are for it, Lord. And we have to deal with hard things today, God. And I pray that you would help us to remember the gospel, that you would help us to know that the cross is greater than any sin in our lives, and that you would remind us to always look to you, that you are kind and gracious and merciful and loving. And we pray that you would overcome this great evil and darkness that has been ruining our society for 46 years, Lord. That you would put an end to abortion for your glory's sake, that the world may know that you reign and that you are mighty. Lord, we pray that your will would be done and that you would comfort our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.